with me, beloved people. Well, uh, this past night, precious people, the Lord Jehovah did speak with me in a very lengthy conversation. Very, very lengthy conversation. Lasting, I don't know, probably five hours or so. A very, very long, non-stop conversation. And in that conversation, the Lord spoke very, very powerfully. It was such a mighty, powerful conversation. And the Lord, Jehovah, He used my mouth, the person of the Holy Spirit used my mouth to speak. And I was speaking out to this generation. I was speaking out to this church, to the people of this generation, the people of this world, to the nations of the earth, to the current body of Christ, non-stop for about five hours this past night. It's very record. That's a record conversation. And I was speaking audibly. And what the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, put in my tongue to speak was righteousness, righteousness. Remember righteousness. Tell your children to walk in righteousness. Remind your husbands about righteousness. Remind your wives about righteousness and tell your neighbors about righteousness. Give a chance. Give a chance to everyone because time has passed. Time is gone now. Let everyone talk about righteousness. Even your neighbors, talk to them about righteousness. Whosoever you meet, tell them about righteousness. Give a chance to everyone to know about the righteousness of Christ Jesus and tell them to adhere to righteousness. Let them walk in righteousness and live their lives in righteousness. Tell them righteousness is important, that they should strive, they should strive to be righteous. Righteousness is what matters. Because time has passed, let them now be in righteousness. Let them live their lives in righteousness and do everything they do in righteousness. And this is something they have to share with their friends. Let them tell their friends about righteousness. And, and that conversation was non-stop for five straight hours this past night. So, precious people, the Lord has spoken about righteousness and underscoring the significance of righteousness again and again and again this past night in a very shocking way. And so when I woke up, but the conversation was very joyful. I was very happy in the conversation because he was really affirming righteousness to the people. And I was telling people to tell their children about righteousness in that dream. And I was telling people to tell their families, their friends, their workmates, their wives, their husbands, their relatives, their uncles, their aunties, that everyone to, should tell each other, tell one another, tell the other about righteousness because time has passed. And we know very well that the Bible says, like now in the book of Psalm 112 verse 6, it says, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. And also Matthew chapter 6 
verse 33, he says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. King James says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So righteousness is so key. The book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 to verse 9, the scripture that celebrates the rapture of the church, the entrance of the church into the glorious, eternal, everlasting kingdom of God. Again, in that scripture, you hear finest linen, bright and clean, was given to the church to wear. Then it says the fine linen stands for the righteousness of the church. And in the book of First Peter, chapter 3, verse 14, King James says, But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Why? Because you have an eternal reward. You'll get the crown of life, the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness. And righteousness, the book of Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, beloved people, the Lord has affirmed, ascertained, confirmed, exalted righteousness this past night in a five-hour historic long conversation with me. And in that conversation, he used my mouth. So, I was speaking audibly for five hours righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. Teach it to your children because time has gone. Time has passed. Righteousness, righteousness, time is gone. Righteousness to your children, to your husband. Remind your neighbors. Tell your friends. And he said, because this, because he also said, because this is something you cannot keep to yourself. You have to share with everyone else you can. Talk to them about righteousness and righteousness and righteousness. Beloved people, the Messiah is coming. The Lord is speaking these things deliberately and intentionally at this hour. And you can see he has come out full force. He has come out openly and boldly, lowering the stairs of heaven in the sky, lowering his two messengers openly from heaven in the sky, down, all the way down, writing scripture in the sky, spreading out his glory, and then writing text for his two dreadful witnesses in the sky, doubling his witnesses openly, publicly. People can take pictures of the two of them. People can see them ministering together. The Bible being fulfilled in the eyes of this generation. The Lord has done coming down in his cloud, reigning inside the tent, cripples walking. The Lord has done bold things openly to reach this generation with the one message that time is over, the Messiah is coming, prepare. He has done his best, he has stepped out of his way. The Lord has done this 
he has stepped one million miles away from where he was supposed to operate to make advances to get to the church to try and help this church that the church may enter. He has come out openly to tell the nations that the Messiah can come at any time now. The Messiah is coming. And now this past night, the most important benchmark of entry into heaven, righteousness. Tell them about righteousness. Make sure you are righteous. Live a righteous life. In whatever you do, remember righteousness. Speak righteousness to your children. Tell your husband to walk in righteousness. Your wife to be righteous. Remember your neighbors and remind them of righteousness. Your workplaces, tell them about righteousness. The whole night until morning, talking about righteousness. In fact, until 3 o'clock, about 5 hours. 5 straight hours, this is historic. And that tells you of some serious gravity about righteousness in the moment, in the time we have entered into. Again, nobody knows the day or the hour. But hasn't the Lord spoken with this generation? May those who have ears prepare the way for the glorious coming of Jesus the Messiah. May you be righteous and holy. Toda, toda. Toda, Rabba. May the Lord bless you. Shalom. Now, I just wanted to share a little bit on the conversation that the Lord had today. And um, when the Lord did speak, speak relentlessly, relentlessly, he was speaking continuously in a very mighty way and using my mouth to speak this to the nations, to speak this to this generation, and to speak this to this current Church of Christ and to all the peoples of the earth. When the Lord said righteousness, it was a beautiful conversation. And he made me very joyful in that conversation, in that dream. He made me very, very joyful. I was very happy. I was extremely very happy in that conversation. Even as I spoke righteousness to this generation and to all the nations of the earth. Now, I know that this is going to be an unfolding story, a continuing story for some time to come. There is so much happening in this ministry. It's amazing. It's very busy. There is a live conversation of the living God. In fact, if one were looking for the defining, the definition of the living God, the true living God of Israel, the God of heaven, Jehovah, Yahweh, then you find it only and only in this ministry. Why? Because he has a constant continuous, relentless, consistent conversation with the church and with the nations through this ministry, showing that, look, I am alive, I am a living God, and I speak on a daily basis. I speak about my agenda, my oracles, I speak about my timeline, my announcements, and all matters that matter to the throne of God Almighty and God Almighty himself. Now, the Lord spoke like you heard this morning about righteousness, 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 and you continue on with righteousness. Tell it to your children. Don't keep quiet about this. Tell it to your husband. Tell it to your neighbors, your wives. 
all tell it your wife if you're one your wives all of you your husbands and uh your workmates to your bosses um to your close associates familiarity friends tell it to everyone tell them this is the time for righteousness and in that conversation he also said because time is over this is something you cannot keep quiet with you must tell them about righteousness and righteousness and righteousness and we all know from the book of revelation uh revelation chapter 19 verse 8 where it talks about fine linen bright and clean was given to the church given the word is given meaning handed down from god as a gift out of grace and mercy given to the church and she wore it on that day of the wedding feast of the lamb she was found wearing it the church that was found wearing that garment is the church that entered and in defining that garment of righteousness defining righteousness the bible also calls right, the fear of god righteousness the bible actually equates the fear of god to righteousness and i want to address some very important issues regarding the current church on now that the lord has raised this matter of righteousness that our lives should be defined by righteousness the righteousness of the lord jesus in our lives in our daily lifestyle and so it is very important also to realize that that fear of god is equal to righteousness because you see in matthew 25 uh, matthew 25 verses 1 to 13 he talks about the wise church versus the foolish church and you see that the wise church enters eternity into heaven and the foolish church stays away is locked away is locked out by jesus himself by the lord jesus the messiah himself because he says to tell you the truth i do not know you and he locks the door slams the door on them they are locked outside in the darkness in hell where they will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth so that wise church that enters that wisdom is essentially equal to the fine linen bright and clean that the church that entered in revelation 19 verse 8 actually wore so that that wisdom is equal to the fear of god which is equal to righteousness but uh, in looking at the definition of righteousness you see that any secular dictionary will tell you that righteousness or biblical dictionary will tell you that righteousness is essentially the goodness that one exudes as they execute their lives that it is being in a state where your character is spiritually accepted that acceptable by the lord accepted by the lord so he talks about character righteousness is actually a character so character that is spiritually acceptable unto the lord he says righteousness is a virtue so anyone living in righteousness is actually exuding virtuousness in their lives it means they have certain tenets of their lives certain instruments certain features in their lifestyle that actually we speak righteousness that talk about uprightness upright standing with god righteousness also is defined by a christian lifestyle that upholds decency because righteousness is decency a righteous person is a decent person you cannot be 
found in lewdness, in immoral dressings, and all these things that are not decent. Indecency that you see has consumed this world. And he says, righteousness is also defined by the integrity of heart, integrity of mind, operating above board in your Christian lifestyle, meaning beyond the reproaches, irreproachability, the reproaches of this world, the snares of this world, you know. He says, righteousness is worthiness. And you know, worthiness is holiness. In Spanish, it's even better because in Spanish you hear, that is digno. Digno is worthy. Digno de adoración. Digno of worship. Worthy of worship. Worthy is also used to express holiness. That the Lord is holy. That his holiness is worthy of worship. So worthiness is holiness. Goodness is holy. Is holiness. You remember the land of Havila where the gold in that land was good gold. Good to the Lord. Nothing is good except it be holy. So it meant actually that that land was holy. A holy land. Now righteousness is also exemplified in the life of the believer by the observance of morality. When someone lives a moral Christian lifestyle where they are moral, they are living in morality, then that can also be said to be a righteous Christian life, a righteous Christian lifestyle, the observance of morality. And that is very key, especially now in this world that is so much kidnapped and ransomed, the code that ransomed by the immorality and the moral decay of this age. Now, a righteous Christian lifestyle is also spelled out and defined in honesty. If a Christian lives honestly, that, that is righteous, just. is just to people, is honest, is just to all people across the board. He produces justice of the Lord in his engagement with people and honesty. Then that person or that Christian lifestyle can be described as a life that is righteous before the Lord. Righteousness is essentially holiness, beloved people as we've seen. So when one lives a holy Christian lifestyle, which is the shunning of sin, then that person, again, can be said to be living a righteous Christian lifestyle, to be a righteous Christian, to be in righteousness. Now, righteousness essentially helps to separate out the church, the Christian. That is the only thing that separates the Christian lifestyle, the Christian religion, from all the others. Because our righteousness is in Christ Jesus the Lord. And the other religions are going to hell because they do not have the righteousness in Christ Jesus our Lord. So righteousness essentially is a moral high ground. In other words, high-mindedness is used to define righteousness in the church. And so in defining all these things, you can see right away there's a big indictment against the house of the Lord, against the present-day Christian believer, because they fall short of all these things I'm talking about that essentially bespeak the righteousness of the Lord. Now, the Lord also brings forth his understanding and definition of righteousness by saying that a righteous Christian lifestyle is a life characterized by honor. In other words, those Christians are living their lives honorably. When they do things, you see the way they walk in their lives, they are walking honorably.
maybe middle class or whatever classes you want to put them on, but these people are honorable people. You just look at somebody, the way they're executing their lives in the university as a student, as a professor, as a, a mother at home, as a mamamboga selling in the kiosk, whatever it is, as a lawyer, a doctor, a banker, even just the way they execute their lives. You see that this person is a very honorable person. So righteousness is also defined by honor, by being honorable, executing your life honorably, dealing with people honorably and living honorably, even unto your husband, your wife, your children, and the people within your engagement. Now, righteousness is further exemplified in the Bible and in Christian lifestyle by a life of innocence. So when somebody walks in righteousness, they have been uh, accorded uh, they have been uh, privileged, they have been accorded the privilege of Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, where the Lord slaughtered an animal and covered out of mercy and grace. Now covered, covered Adam and Eve because of their fall. And out of that covering, he essentially was giving a four prophecy. He was saying, no, this skin, animal skin that has come out of the blood sacrifice that I cover you with, essentially foretells of the garment of righteousness that the church will receive in Isaiah 61 verse 10 and also she will be wearing finest linen, as finest linen, bright and clean. In the book of Revelation 19 verse 9, verse 8 and 9, verse 8 when they enter, verses 6 to 9 if you will. But verse 8 defines that garment as the righteousness of the church. So innocence is very powerful because this essentially corrects the mal, mal behavior that took place in the Garden of Eden. So a righteous person is essentially a person that has had their lives corrected and changed. So that now the way they are living, they are living in innocence. They are living as though Adam and Eve have just been created and there is no death yet in the equation and the blueprint and the architectural plan of salvation and relationship with God. And uh, death has not been factored in, and they remain innocent that way. So it's about restoration that has taken place, righteousness. Now, the other thing about righteousness that the church needs to understand, the righteousness the Lord trumpeted and spoke very wonderfully. It was a wonderful conversation, and he made me very joyful the whole night for five hours. This is his story. For five hours, it was so much joy. He made me so happy to talk about righteousness to the nation. And I was so happy. I was so pleased in that dream because I knew that the Lord was making gains. I knew that this is finally the substantive gains that the church ought to make in order to enter the glorious kingdom of heaven. So they, they were moral, these are high moral ground, high mindedness. The Lord was exalting the church by now trumpeting righteousness that she may sieve through and now become the righteous remnant of heaven. So I said an honorable lifestyle, a lifestyle that is characterized with innocence, meaning not even your neighbor can stand up and point a finger at you, blamelessness. The Lord restores your innocence, and then blamelessness. When you live a blameless life, you can be counted as a righteous person. And all these attributes I'm talking about were conferred upon the church, as we're going to see very shortly, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit presented that she may achieve these milestones in her daily life. 
be not anything wrong he has done inadvertently or she has done inadvertently. You see them all with acute repentance. You see them very penitent. They repent from sin. And I think all this I'm speaking is the exact opposite of what's going on in the church today globally. Even as you see in Nairobi here, the church in Nairobi, you know, that sometimes the food billboards that want to discuss about this, the youth and what, this kind of immoral topics that you see are the schemes of the devil in the church, even the dressings in the church and all this that they do here, Kakamega, Kisumuaya, this other church. This is the exact opposite of them as far as now. That's far reached, meaning holiness, goodness, righteousness means uprightness. It means living a spiritual acceptable character before God, virtuousness, decency, integrity of heart, integrity of mind, worthiness, morality, meaning staying away from immorality. Now, just with that one benchmark of morality, you can net the entire church globally because the immorality has really swept through in a very, very stunning way, in a shocking manner that can only define the hour we are in. Honesty. Most of them are not honest. Lies are in there. You know, holiness, high-mindedness, high moral ground, honor, innocence, blamelessness, irreproachability, purity, purity and separation from the world, from the moral decay of this world. So really, righteousness the Lord was raising today is going to be the most important single factor that the church will need to be able to see the glorious eternal kingdom of God. Now, I want to go further on to say this, beloved people, that uh, righteousness right now, as presented by the Bible, the Holy Word, righteousness comes from God the Father. God the Father exalts righteousness. He exalts it in front of the church this morning and from before and today even the more. He uses his mouthpiece to trumpet this to the whole world because righteousness actually comes from God the Father. God the Father is righteous. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is righteous. And the Holy Spirit is righteous. So really you see that if you are going to engage with the Lord, then righteousness is a very important undertaking. And if there is anything that our Lord Jesus Christ achieved for us in Genesis 3.21 and also in the book of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 on, led to the slaughter like a lamb, you know, who was crushed. It was the Father's will that he be crushed, to take away our iniquity and sin and disease. So if there's any gain that you see Psalm 22, all these scriptures I'm talking about, Isaiah 52 also, verse 14, verses 14 to 15, if there's any one single gain you can lay your hand on it, then this is it, that the Lord gave the church plus others, but this one, then that gain is righteousness because he finally reached sinful man to the triunity of God, God the Father, who is very righteous, Jesus Christ the Lord himself, who is very righteous, the Holy Spirit, who is actually very righteous. So righteousness is the most, at this hour, the most important thing or benchmark or character that the church can strive to attain. And you know, this is a very important message, beloved people, because it comes at a time when righteousness is lacking most in this world. This world is most unrighteous at this hour. She's at the peak of unrighteousness. 
And so I want to address the church a little bit, the church of Christ, because I've seen a big misconception on righteousness. Of course, the Bible promises false teachers will come, but still it's important to redeem the sheep, to bring the truth to the nations of the earth regarding the righteousness that Jehovah Yahweh spoke for five straight hours today in the night in an amazing historic teaching by voice, historic announcement, historic pronouncement, historic decree, historic calling of the church, beckoning of the church, righteousness, righteousness. So, I want to address this. Righteousness, beloved people, as you all know now, is the most misunderstood concept in the Christian salvation. You just look at the Church of Christ today and you understand there is a big misunderstanding on this concept of righteousness in the present-day Christian salvation. Why? Because many present-day teachers of the Bible or preachers of the Word have actually attempted to corrupt this virtuous concept that our God has invaded in the salvation of the cross. Many preachers have, have, because of the great corruption of the world, that corruption has come into the church, and it has actually deformed, defamed, and uh, now misconstrued. Has now uh, they have attempted to corrupt this virtuous concept of righteousness, this virtue of righteousness that our Lord Jesus so horrendously and costly armed for us on the Calvary cross. So when you look at uh, the present-day Christian life, you see that there is a misconception on this very important aspect of righteousness. And I agree. I agree that righteousness had to be the greatest target of the enemy in the church. Why? Because if he does not target righteousness and they catch the concept right, they will all enter the glorious eternal kingdom of heaven. And yet we know that the devil wants to go with everybody to hell. So this is expected. This attack that has taken place on righteousness, on the concept of righteousness, this corrupting of this virtue of righteousness in the present-day Christian lifestyle, Christian salvation, is actually expected. That is the fall, the apostasy that was expected. And knowing the way the enemy operates, you knew that this would have to be a target. Now, I want just to open up a little bit on righteousness, what the Lord intended it to be, that we may all be on the same page and footing. The righteousness that the Lord brought us through Christ Jesus was actually intended by God Yahweh to be a gift, a gift to the repentant sinner. And that is very important. Repentant sinner, not perpetual sinner. Not repeated sinner, not skillful sinner, not professional sinner, not addicted sinner. He says, righteousness that God brought us through our Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness that you see is credited to the church, was intended by God Almighty Yahweh, Jehovah, to be a gift to the repentant sinner. In other words, the repentant Christian and not the rampant sinner or the rampant, rampantly sinning Christian. 
So right away there, you understand that there is a big problem in the church. Because there is righteousness, there is those things about, which is brought by the grace. And their lifestyle that you see, even displayed on Christian TV and in the streets, tells you that there is the abuse of grace and the abuse of the righteousness of God himself that he extended to the church. Because there is no way anyone would claim that they have received this grace of the righteousness of the Lord, the Holy God of heaven, mere mortals, receive the righteousness of God through the grace of Jesus, and then walk loose, walk naked in the streets, expose yourselves in such a filthy way. There is no way our God is separated from sin. And you can see his original intent is actually to separate us from sin too. And that's why he provided Jesus. So God the Father Yahweh indeed intended that the Christian believers attain the gift of righteousness through his glorious son, Jesus Christ. The Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he developed a mechanism in his blueprint for righteousness as a standard for the church to enter heaven. That mechanism had to be Jesus Christ, to breed man, fallen man, to now the righteous God. But there is a transforming factor I'm going to talk about here. And that's why what you see today being preached while there, you see the pastor or the pastor's wife standing with the pastor on global TV up at the altar, and the altar is high up there, and she's dressed in a short dress, and people are sitting down here, and they are almost looking at her in decency. So that is not the righteousness we are talking about. Then you hear that preacher talking about righteousness is a gift of grace, don't worry about this and that. That is a misconception. That is actually the devil in the church. The devil attempting to lie to the church to, put, to surprise her that she may find herself in hell. And must. So, this righteousness was intended and meant to be achieved, beloved people, that once Jesus died on the cross, then now the present-day Christian was given this access to the righteousness of God, free of charge, by the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the Christian. Again, by the Holy Spirit working, doing work, the work of God, in the lives of the Christians, to clean out, to purge off the dross of sin and immorality in the body of Christ, in the life of the believer, in the heart of the Christian. Now, that is a very important standard right there. He says, this is the blueprint of God regarding the righteousness that you saw here, them trumpet so much on TV, in their churches, they say, oh, we are righteous, we have the righteousness of God, let us celebrate. That righteousness was intended to come in this way. It was meant to be attained by Christ Jesus dying on the cross and then handing down the garment of righteousness, as the Bible says in Revelation 19, was given her gratis, free of charge. Handing down to the church the garment of righteousness and then sending the Holy Spirit of God to do work, to start working in the lives of the Christians to clean out, to purge off the sin that had beclouded their eternity to purge off the dross of immorality, indecency, sin, deception, call it what? All anything sin and wickedness. So that righteousness was supposed to have been achieved by a continual work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian believer to clean out anything sinful that would separate the church from God. You see that now? That is the righteousness by grace that the church received, the right 
intended that the Holy Spirit, after one receives the Lord, the Holy Spirit now come in them, the present-day church, the present-day Christian, and he incinerate, begin to burn off with unquenchable fire, the sinful affections of men, the sinful passions of the flesh, and the sinful pleasures of the flesh. That is what was intended. So that tells you right away that this thing you are seeing in the present-day modern church, this is the work of Satan, and he's going to plunge them into hell. God is holy and righteous, and he has availed us a means of being work in progress, working progress, that we too may inherit the righteousness of God now through the work of Christ Jesus and enter heaven. It was not meant to be abused. The abuse you see today, the abuse of the grace. In other words, when one receives the Christ Jesus that died on the cross at Calvary, they were intended to now receive the Holy Spirit. And upon receiving the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, as promised by the Lord, the Holy Spirit would begin working in the lives of the Christians to clean out the sin, sin, evil, and wickedness, to purge off the dross, the dross of immorality and decay. And in so doing, incinerate the sinful affections of man, the sinful passions of man, and the sinful desires and pleasures of the flesh. That is the way the righteousness of God was supposed to be translated into mortal men now. That mortal men may now live a more or less immortal, in fact, an immortal life. Right? An immortal life while still on the earth. Not more or less. A completely immortal life. If you look at their values, their virtues, their value systems, their rankings in life, how they do their things, it was supposed to transcend, to be beyond the moral decay of this age. And hence, the Holy Spirit was intended to conform the hearts and the lives of the Christian believers to the image and likeness of God. That is very powerful, because now you understand the true definition of the righteousness of God that no man should ever stand before you and lie to you. Ah, don't worry, we have the righteousness of God because we are Christians. We as Christian believers, we have the righteousness of God. So God finished the work. Don't worry about these things. No. The righteousness that comes by the grace of Jesus was supposed to lead to the destruction, to the incineration of the sinful affections of the flesh, the sinful desires and passions of the flesh, the sinful pleasures and the desires of the flesh. And in the process, now conform the Christian heart, the hearts of the Christian believers, to the image and the likeness of God that had been lost before. I am reading the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, verses 26 and 26. He says, And God said, Let us make man in our own image. King James. And God said, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping creature that creepeth on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, in the image of God created he, him. Male and female created he, them. So it's very powerful. And then he wrote, Amplified says, 
God says, let us, the Father, God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image after our likeness, and let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and tame the tame beast, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps upon the earth. And then he gives the reference of Psalm 1 of over 30, and Hebrews 1 and 2, and 11 and 3. So God created man in his own image. In the image and likeness of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So this is very powerful. Then he gives the reference of Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. So you see, beloved people, I am using that to underscore to you, precious listeners and those tuned in globally, to underscore to you that there is a great misconception unto the virtue of righteousness in the church. Righteousness is the most misconceived, misunderstood concept of Christian salvation in the present age, in the present church. Because far from this, they have been doing their own thing on righteousness. You find they are in immorality, they are living with each other, couples unmarried and so forth and still proclaiming the righteousness of the Lord. Now we have seen that the Lord indeed intended and meant that that righteousness be achieved after receiving Christ and by the workings of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the hearts of the Christians to purge off the sin of immorality, decay, and everything evil and wicked from the lives of the Christians, the born again. And in the process, he says, it was meant essentially to incinerate the sinful desires the sinful affections, the sinful passions, the sinful pleasures of the flesh from the church. But what do you see in the present-day church? The sinful afflictions, the sinful affections and desires and pleasures of this world are full-blown in the church. They are full-blown. Women are worshipping up their naked. They are showing their breasts and they are saying they are pastors. They are tight trousers showing the anatomy causing laughs as they preach. And they say they are preachers. So this is a whole misconception. And thank God we can discuss this today. And I say, at the end of it, was to lead to the confirmation of the soul of the Christian believer, the heart and the lives of the Christian believers, the soul of mankind to the image and likeness of God. And I've read from the book of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, to bring to you, to bring home to you, the fact that that image, and likeness of God with which he created man in the beginning was actually the righteousness and the holiness of God in man. It was a spiritual image. And that image was lost by Adam when Adam went down in apostasy into sin when he fell, but restored by Christ, but restored in a chronological, sequential manner that befits the blueprint of God. And the blueprint was receiving Christ, then receiving the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life perpetually and daily, cleaning out the sinful affections and desires and pleasures of sin from your life, and then finally achieving the complete conformation, the conforming, the conformity of your soul to the image and likeness of God that had initially been intended for man. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, and 27, when the Lord created innocent men. Therefore, beloved people, for that matter, the grace and the mercy of our God was 
principally designed by the Creator, Jehovah Yahweh, to avail what's the following, beloved people. In other words, what I've said until now is that the redemptive blood of Jesus was of faith worth by the grace of God, the grace and mercy. And that's why there's a misunderstanding all across the board on this grace. They think you can do what you want or go about your life the way you want and still call it the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That grace came at a price, beloved people. And the church has their responsibility. And he says, so that grace of Jesus that is so much sung and professed and confessed by the believers of this day, they love it very much, it was meant to unveil the following. The redemptive blood of Christ Jesus for the washing away of the sins of men, for the washing away of the sins of the repentant person. I highlight repentance. Where repentance is, I was walking in sin, then I was convicted, I, the truth came to me. I became convicted that this is sin. Then I stopped it. I made a 180-degree turn and began to walk exactly into the opposite direction. Number two, the grace of our Lord Jesus was meant to bring us the anointing of the Holy Spirit for the purging off of sin and the reconformation, because initially conformed in Genesis 1, 26, 27, but now to reconform the souls of the Christian believers to the original intended image and likeness of God. That's very powerful, beloved people. And number three, if you so will, or four, whichever, the purpose of the grace of our Lord Jesus. Now you see, the grace of our Lord Jesus from number two was essentially meant to bring righteousness and holiness to the church, the image and likeness of God to the church. And that's why if anybody comes to you and they say righteousness, righteousness in the university, I'm a student, I'm working righteousness, I'm a teacher, a lecturer, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a banker, I'm a professor. I am also a pastor, I'm a Christian, I walk in righteousness. And their lives are not conforming, at least conforming, conforming to the original intended holy image of righteousness of God. Then you can tell that there is a deception. Something is not right somewhere. Something doesn't add up. And three, to create a continuous awareness. So you see now, I'm defining the tenets of the grace of our Lord Jesus that the present-day preachers have abused to the max. I'm saying that grace of our Lord Jesus was intended to unveil to us, to the church, the redemptive blood of Jesus for repentance in us. And I said, number two, to unveil, hence, the anointing of the Holy Spirit for incinerating sin for purging off the dross of sin from the lives of the believers and reconforming the life, the soul of the Christian believer back to the original intended image and likeness of God. No mistake can be made about this. No confusion can be made about this. It's not confusing. It's as clear as day and night. That is the clarity that is spells out here. And I said, number three, that grace of our Lord Jesus was meant to create a sensitivity, in other words, a continuous awareness of the consequences of sin that our Lord Jesus bore for us on the cross. That now when you become the beholder of the tremendous grace of our Lord Jesus, then you are also aware of the price of that grace. And that is what will buffer you. It will stop you. It will deter you from abusing that grace. 
when you see the current abuse of the grace of the church, then you understand surely, surely indeed, a misunderstanding has blended in within the Christian lifestyle, within the body of Christ, regarding the righteous requirements of the Lord. For that matter, beloved, therefore, the righteousness through the grace that the Lord gave us through the grace is meant for the following. It's meant for all of the above of faith. But the grace of our Lord Jesus and the righteousness he gave us was never meant to tolerate sin for purposes of tolerating sin in the church of Christ as you see today. Never. Why? Because righteousness and the grace that brings that righteousness were meant to sensitize the church on the price Jesus paid at Calvary. Otherwise, the Bible in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, would say that you are re-crucifying Jesus again and subjecting him to public disgrace, public shame. If you are not sensitive to the tremendous, unbelievable price that Jesus paid on the cross to attain righteousness for the church. And that warning on the abuse of the grace is seen in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. It's also seen in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. And it's also found in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. So, the warning on the abuse of the grace, living insensitively, not being sensitive to the price, the horrendous cost and price that our Lord Jesus Christ paid on the cross, he says that warning by God himself comes comes to the church, it's laid down there in the book of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, and Second Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. In fact, he becomes very brutal in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, when he says, after we've received the knowledge of the truth and received the salvation of the Christ, Receive the grace that set us free. And then we recycle back to sin in so-called grace is sufficient. Don't worry, grace is... Of course grace is sufficient, but not for abuse. But if we receive that grace and subject ourselves back to sin, he says it is like a dog vomiting and going back to its vomit and eating the vomit. That is just how brutal it becomes in defining the abuse of the grace that so earned us the undeserved righteousness of God that the present-day church ought to be wearing in their lifetime. In fact, the deeper meaning of the righteousness of God relates to the behavioral changes, the behavioral changes that occur in a person once they become covenant partners with the Lord within the covenant of the grace within the holy covenant of grace. I said holy. The covenant of the grace of God is not sinful. When you look at the present-day church, the way they are executing their preaching and their lifestyle, mixing with sin and making accolades to sin, confirming sin, accepting sin, tolerating sin, it is as though they are saying that the covenant partnership they have entered in with the Lord is actually an evil partnership, is a wicked partnership, is a sinful partnership. It is not a sinful partnership. I say the deeper meaning of righteousness actually relates to the behavioral change.
behavior, conduct of the present Christian believer, the changes they are supposed to go through that are supposed to occur on them to their person, to their lifestyle, if they now receive Christ and become covenant partners with God, to enter into the holy covenant of God, that's what I'm talking about here, a relationship, a holy relationship with the almighty creator, the one that speaks with me every single day, even in the day today, he spoke with me today about the church in Nigeria, see a lot of witchcraft, there are so many witches have assembled somewhere, I think it's a funeral, someone has died, and they are without shirts, many, many dressed in the traditional way, and there is a, some leaders that have come there. There is a traditional ceremony on death being done there in Nigeria. And I think one of them, I hear his name. I had the name I can say. It starts with A, D. Yes, I don't want to say. Yes, I hear him, you know, uh, talking to the widow and all that, you know. But it's a celebration of death, it's worshiping of death. Nigeria, very occult. The Lord took me there this afternoon. So I'm saying the righteousness we are involved in, the righteousness that is grafted unto the church, credited to her for her faith and belief, even as Abraham was, and Enoch also. That righteousness, beloved people, relates to having a covenant with the Holy God. So it has the tenets of holiness. It cannot be some unsinful behavior or conduct or relationship. So the Lord Jehovah, essentially, beloved people, he himself is very righteous, as we've seen. And therefore, he speaks and acts and executes his agenda in the church according to his holiness and purity and the righteous being of God. So God never executes any of his agendas speaking or acting in a manner that's not righteous. So you wonder, where did the present-day church pick her unrighteousness from? Her exaltation of righteousness and confirmation and ratification of righteousness. They actually endorse it. And they say, don't worry, God does not look at your behavior, your dressing, he looks at your heart. I don't understand where that came from. That is what they're essentially saying when you see them dressing the way they're dressing and preaching the way they're preaching. Telling you, don't worry, it's about prosperity. God wants you to prosper. He doesn't look at righteousness. And when you look at the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms 22, verse 31, you get some little information there, more about righteousness, quite a bit though, about righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord. Psalm 22, verse 31. This is what the Bible says. I'm reading NIV. Then he says, they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. So you see now, that's very powerful. He's saying that once you enter into the righteousness of the Lord, once you enter into the covenant of the grace of our Lord Jesus, and you begin now percolate, the righteousness of God begins to infiltrate your life, percolate into your life, you will proclaim it with your tongue. And you can never proclaim that which you don't live. And here he says, even unto the coming generation, beloved people. And Psalm 51, verse 14, also helps you understand what God intended righteousness to achieve in the life of the present-day believer. And hence the great misunderstanding. So Psalm 51, verse 14, he says, 
save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. So you see that. He's talking about a repentance item here, a repentant person here, and an element of repentance in the church, and that in that repentance, there is a turnabout, there is a turnaround in behavior. The fact that now, once pardoned, once you're penitent and you repent and you are pardoned, then you begin to live that righteous life of God, righteousness of God, but also proclaim it. Would you see the present day church proclaiming righteousness in their tongue? They do not. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 22 also helps you. Amos chapter 5, 21, we can read probably to 24. This is what he says, beloved people. And he says, Amos chapter 5, 21, he says, all the way to 24, we can finish up 24. He says, I hate, I despair your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your song, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's very powerful. So the Lord talks about this vanity that mankind always recycles into. That they see a revival, and then at one point they recycle into vanity, into apostasy. They become apostates. They recycle into apostasy. They recycle into apostasy and expect the Lord to still receive their offering, their sacrifices of praise and worship. And that is what you see in the church. And he says, no, those assemblies have not gathered in my name. Because he says, you have not upheld righteousness. I will not listen to your sacrifices of worship and praise. Therefore, the covenant people of God, beloved people, the church of Christ, they are quickly, expressly called upon to live righteous life. That's what we've seen until now. The church and the present day believer is actually called to live a righteous life. The covenant of the grace of our Lord Jesus. The covenant people of God. The covenant of our Lord Jesus essentially expressly calls upon the Christian believers, those covenant partners to live righteous life in conformity and alignment with the demands of the very covenant of grace they so profess and love. In other words, I'm saying the covenant of the grace of our Lord Jesus is righteous. It is a holy covenant. Even if we get it free of church, but by faith we receive it. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work, workings in us, removing sin, removing decay, removing corruption, and then conforming powerfully conforming and aligning the souls of the believers to the very nature, the holy nature of that covenant, to the righteous nature of that covenant. In other words, I'm saying the Lord Yahweh calls upon the present-day church, believers, present-day generation, 
the present-day earth, the nations, to repent and live righteous life. That is the message the Lord is giving the church. He's saying righteousness you cannot get away with. To repent and live lives that are righteous. Because the covenant of our Lord Jesus is a righteous covenant. It's a holy covenant. And he's saying righteousness is still the benchmark of heaven that the Holy Spirit has come to help the church to attain. It is not some lofty aspiration, some imaginary and putative imagination. No. He's saying the righteousness of God is achievable in this life just as Jesus, by example, lived a righteous life here through the help of the Holy Spirit that descended on him, upon him at the river Jordan. He says, so does the church now have that ability, that capability and capacity to live a righteous life because the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit has been availed to her too. In the same way he said about the death of Christ and his resurrection, that just as the Holy Spirit of God helped Christ the Messiah to overcome death on the cross and go down and resurrect, so will the Holy Spirit help the present-day church and those who have slept before, who have been holy, present-day holy church, to be able to overcome death and resurrect and see eternity. And so I don't see anywhere in the Bible where the Bible says, no, you can just live sinful lives because the grace is sufficient. Instead, I see the Bible saying that, be careful, the grace of our Lord Jesus is a holy grace. There was a price paid. It's a righteous grace. And the Holy Spirit is available to help you to begin to make scores and gain towards the holiness of the Lord. And beloved people, when you read the book of Luke chapter 3, it's powerful from verse 7, it says, John said to the crowd coming out to be baptized by him. This talks about the righteousness demands of God. The demands of righteousness he lays upon us within the covenant of grace. John the Baptist said to the crowd coming out to be baptized by him. You fruits of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say unto yourself, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we are the children of Abraham. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the foot of the tree, at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear good fruit of repentance will be cut down and thrown into fire, the unquenchable fire. So, so I can read on and on, but that is so powerful. It helps to define actually the grace and the righteousness he brings us. That defines the righteousness of God. He says, righteousness is best defined by repentance. And when repentance takes place in the heart of a believer, he says, they are then required by the God of the grace, by the law of the grace, to produce forth good fruit, the fruit of repentance. Meaning now to be righteous, beloved people. So righteousness is the fruit of repentance. Before the Lord, righteousness is the fruit of repentance. In finishing, precious people, the first segment, I want to say that Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, he also presented righteousness as living.
God of our grace, Christ Jesus, the God of grace, the messenger of the covenant, he himself, the covenant of grace, when he brought it, he defined it once. He said it implies living in conformity to the will of God. And that is so powerful. In Matthew chapter 5, I can read Matthew 5, 17 to 18, to underscore how the Lord Jesus actually defined to us his righteousness, his covenant of grace, and the righteousness it bestows upon the church. So Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 17 to 20, this is what he says. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the lists of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So that is very powerful. He says that the law was given to the church. That's why your Bible is complete as Old Testament and New Testament. That the law was given to the church, the law was given to mankind, that they may be able to know what constitutes sin. How can you know what is sin if you do not know what the law says? If the law says do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not covet, then you are able now within the covenant of grace, which you are given freely, to steer away from them. You are able now to work with the Holy Spirit. To stay away from that which is sin. That's why he said he only came to fulfill the law and the prophet. He did not come to delete it and it will not be deleted. It stands forever. Because that is the only way the present day church can know what constitutes sin and what does not constitute sin. And so in finishing, beloved people, I want to enter this segment here. There is an article. These are articles that uh, the Spirit of the Lord wrote about, well, three years ago or so, 2015, and one of them that uh, I know now they're being posted on the web everywhere for everyone to have a chance, especially that now the Lord is speaking about righteousness, 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 now and urgent and now. Now, this article here, the one I'm taking, I'm taking only a segment, only a segment of it. It's a very extensive article on the garment that the church ought to wear at this hour. It says the garment of the Lord, what the church ought to know. That garment you see defined in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 8, as the righteousness of the church. So you see, I'm reading, let me just read from this article that uh, the Lord compelled me to write. The Spirit of the Lord led me to write this article about uh, three years ago on the righteousness of the church, on the garment she ought to wear now to see the glorious kingdom of eternity. 
So now, this is a small subsection. It's actually the last subtitle complete the article. But the article is very extensive, very huge. It will take you some, maybe an hour or so to read, or more, depending on your speed. So this subtitle now says, Tabernacle Worship and the Church. And it says, because of what has been discussed about here, above here I talked about the raiment of Aaron. Let me read one of the pieces from the above portion. The above portion says that during the time of Moses, the man of God, when he and the Israelites faithfully consulted and adhered to the instruction that the anointed, skillful men directed, directed Israel, directed the Israelites to execute, they were then able to lay down those specifications on the raiment of the tabernacle and hence to achieve the perfect clothing with which to appear before Jehovah. We all know what the book of Exodus 28, verses 1 to 5 says. That when it was time for Aaron to appear before the Lord, then the Lord now says there is a protocol, that there is a garment. And he instructs Moses that Aaron should separate out with his son, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, that they may be now anointed, consecrated as priests to serve in the office of priests. In other words, to appear before Jehovah. And that is the same place the church is in today. She is in a place where I have given the prophecy that I have seen her appearing before the throne of God and worshipping the Lord, meaning that is the prophecy saying that soon the church will appear. But for Aaron, when it was time to appear, and then the Lord talks to Moses to go to the skillful one, which is Bezalel, there too, Bezalel and his colleague, whom the Lord had given skills. The Spirit of the Lord had descended on them and given them skills to knit the garment of the priest, the garment of Aaron. So he's saying that when the Israelites went to the skillful one, the skillful men, who directed the Israelites, they were then able to attain the tabernacle worship. And he says, that became the most memorable and the most celebrated worship in the life of Israel, considering that it brought down the cloud of God's glory upon the mercy seat of the earth of the covenant of Yahweh. And then he finishes that upper piece before he starts our statement that the church too is highlighted. He says the church too is to take this lesson that is highlighted in the Bible and use it to fully submit under the lordship and the leadership of the Holy Spirit that she too may be able to appear right before the throne of God, meaning to meet all the required benchmarks of God. Now, the portion I want to read for you in finishing tonight is entitled Tabernacle Worship and the Church. So, from the above, so now I can say, I can read it on. It says, from the above discourse, we see that the church today can do with a lot of learning from the manner in which the Levitical garment was prepared in order to install high worship in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a mobile altar of worship where God Almighty Yahweh met Moses, he met with Moses there, and the children of Israel, in order to spell out to them 
his redemptive agenda for them and for mankind as a whole. That is now what happened when there was high worship. So he's saying that there are some serious lessons the present-day church needs to learn about righteousness from the tabernacle of Moses. And he says, at that tabernacle, the Lord made sure the tabernacle was first of all mobile, but when there was worship, when he descended there, then he was able to meet Moses and meet the Israelites and spell out to them his redemptive plan for Israel and for the whole human race. And he goes on to say, in that way, the tabernacle was always located right in the center of the Israelite camp, comma, because at that time, that was the blueprint of God, and it was then surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's saying, in that way, the tabernacle was always located in the center of the Israelite camp and surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel. And in that way, God Almighty delivered the most important message to mankind through this tabernacle worship. And he says, the message of the Lord located in the tabernacle as it was placed at the center of the Israelite camp was that Jehovah intended, he intended his worship to be the centerpiece of the lives of his people on a daily basis, wherever they went, for as long as they walked with us. And of course in heaven too. So he's saying, again, precious people, that in God's design and blueprint, and in his wisdom, he designed in such a way that the tabernacle was in the center of the camp. And surrounding the tabernacle were the 12 tribes. And every time, the purpose was that every time they came out of their tents, they looked and saw the tabernacle. Every time you came out of your door, you were sitting in the house, and you looked out, you saw the tabernacle. The tabernacle was hence intended to be a centerpiece of the lives of the Israelites' beloved people. And he's saying, in the same way, the tabernacle of worship was established by the Lord in order to demonstrate and clearly illustrate to this generation and to mankind on the holiness agenda of God on the earth. So every time you see saw the tabernacle, you stepped out like this, your eyes first hit the tabernacle, and inevitably it hit the holiness agenda of God for Israel, beloved people, and the earth. This was deliberately designed by the Lord Yahweh in order to underscore his desire to draw all mankind close to himself. Therefore, the kind and quality of worship sacrifice that the Lord prescribed as a requirement to meet his heavenly satiation, in other words, heavenly demands, principally expressed the grievous disconnection sin had wrought in the sacred relationship between God and man. So that's a very powerful thing that he's raising there. He's saying that there is so much lesson that the present-day church can borrow from the tabernacle worship the tabernacle of the Lord that was in the wilderness, the tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle of God the Israelites moved around with. Because he's saying, 
first of all, that worship was meant to be the centerpiece of the lives of the present-day believer. Number two, that it was meant to remind them, every time they see the tabernacle, they see worship, it is intended to remind them of the holiness of God, the holiness agenda of God in their lives. And he goes on to say, beloved people, that the kind and the quality of sacrifice that was offered in that tabernacle also bespoke, bespoke volume. It spoke something so critical to the present-day church. It spoke then to Israel, and it speaks to us. Because to them, it reminded them of the disconnection that sin had roused, had brought in the sacred relationship between Jehovah, the Lord, and the church, Jehovah, and mankind. That's why the sacrifice was now for propitiation, propitiation, beloved people. It was for appeasing God that there may be a reconciliation. So that reminder rang in their hearts and minds on a daily basis, in their souls. And he's saying, in the same way, that tabernacle worship, because it was pointing on Christ Jesus and the reconciliation he would bring to the present church, it teaches lasting lessons to the present day church. He's saying, the quality and kind, now he's talking about quality, the quality and kind of worship, worship sacrifice, that the Lord prescribed, demanded, the benchmark he raised there, to be met for heavenly satiation, satisfaction, eh? for heavenly um, uh, requirements, demands. It was principally meant to express the grievous disconnect that sin had brought in the sacred relationship between mankind and God. And that is what should remind us. In fact, the present-day church should always be reminded, whenever they see the cross, to be reminded of the great separation sin had brought between God and mankind and us. And that should cause the church to hate sin. That if sin can rob such an eternal relationship that had no death, rob it of mankind and bring in death and suffering and pain and agony and weeping and groaning and tumors and HIV, diabetes, cancer, leukemia, herpes, hepatitis, what? And bring in this divorce, what? Murders, stealing, theft. If sin could do that, could separate the beautiful relationship of peace and fellowship with God, and now bring in all this ugliness of wickedness, then surely the present-day church has no excuse for delving and dwelling in sin. Because it should remind her of the tremendous price Jesus paid to connect back the disconnect that had happened between the sacred, the sacred relationship between God Almighty and man. So men, the church should hate sin. I don't know why you have all these young ladies walking around the town nude and they belong to churches. They call them what, what, what in this city here. Huh? Nudity, tight trousers, what? Almost vanity, empty, shameful, disgraceful. Huh? Young men behaving funny in the universities and calling themselves Christians and all over in the workplaces, women and men. Why? Because he says, if you looked at the tabernacle, or if you look at the cross we have today, it should really vividly remind you of the dangers of sin and how grave the eternal consequences of sin. And it should cause you to hate sin. So I don't even understand. I don't understand this generation, beloved people. And he says, so that now, the previous disconnection that sin roused 
being in the sacred relationship that had been established between God and man. Even the wonderful image and likeness of man, of God that was in man. He says further on, that sin had caused the erosion and the depletion of the innocence of mankind and the purity he enjoyed before God. That is what sin did. This is what compelled the Lord Almighty to now set up an exacting law in approaching him in the tabernacle worship, whereby penitence and deep repentance would be key and central. He goes on to say, for that matter, the stipulations to be fulfilled in order to approach God in the tabernacle worship essentially reveal the awesome, dreadful holiness and majesty of God Almighty. Even more importantly then, is the fact that God's gracious desire and merciful desire to draw mankind close to himself should not in any way be misconstrued in any way to diminish his purity and his righteousness and the, and, and the righteousness requirements of God upon the church. This is very powerful, beloved people. He says, even more importantly, huh? more importantly, more significantly, then is the fact that God's gracious desire to draw us to himself, to draw mankind close to him, should not in any way, should never in any way diminish his purity and his righteousness. Hence the role of repentance and penitence are sacrifice. He's saying, when God said, I want to draw you to myself, I want to forget about the sins of the church, never did that intend to mean that it would now diminish the holiness of God. Now God is not holy. He has now drawn us to himself in our sin. That's okay. So the price Jesus paid on the cross is useless. Let's just go with sin before the Lord. Not at all. He said that's why he sent his own son to die on the cross to help us with the help of the Holy Spirit that we may now be holy and with even our lifestyle. That when anyone looks at the life of the Christian believer, he sees a holy intent, a righteous intent. You see that the intention is righteous. The intention is holy. And so never intended to diminish the holiness of the Lord. Because that worship, really, of the tabernacle, essentially delivered the awesome, dreadful holiness and the majesty of the Lord. You can tell even at the tabernacle on the mountain, when he set up a tabernacle on Mount Sinai, when he came down and set up a tabernacle of worship up there, then he said, tell them not to touch the foot of the the foot of the mountain, rather. Why? Because it was holy ground. And you now needed a mediator, the Messiah, to admit you there. But not to come and ratify and endorse sin. Jesus never came to endorse sin. This thing you see in the current church all over the United States of America and all over Europe, where homosexuality, what, what, all this nudity and prosperity preaching of America without holiness... It's as though they are saying, and you know people are nude, and the cameras, of course, are recording them. So the Muslims, the Hindus are watching and saying, what kind of worship is this? These people are worshiping an idol, worshiping an, an idol God. They worship an unholy God, a God that is unholy. Because we find women dressed in immoral, and they are being recorded on camera and transmitted globally. 
putting Christ to shame and subjecting him public disgrace, disgrace and crucifying him once again, all over again. Shaming Jesus and doing the, 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 the gains of the cross. He says, no, that is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people, the, the design of God was that when people are drawn to him, they should be able to appreciate his holiness, his righteousness. And you can see their effort towards righteousness and how the Holy Spirit is helping them to achieve, to score those milestones. Hallelujah. And then he goes on to say, beloved people down here, so penitence, he, talk, he says, therefore, repentance and penitence is central in that worship experience at the tabernacle and hence the lesson to the present day worship experience. And then he goes on, beloved people, to say, for that matter then, the tabernacle with all its respective elements, including the articles of worship, were all deliberately ordered by God Yahweh himself, arranged by God Yahweh himself, in order to deliver a most important message to the present-day church. It says the message underscored here in the tabernacle worship is with regards to God's worship pattern during the dispensation of the grace. Meaning, there is a worship pattern. I just read for you Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, on how the Lord designed unto us the worship pattern with which we should worship the grace. That you worship, but you cannot abuse the grace. It's just like the Holy Spirit. He is part of our worship pattern. He says, just worship the Holy Spirit, but you can never grieve Him. You can never blaspheme Him. Because then you cannot be forgiven. So that is God's pattern. His set pattern. He says, for instance, the fact that the tabernacle could be moved from place to place simply denoted and pointed to the fact that God intended mankind to carry the worship of Jehovah, his worship relationship with man, he intended that mankind carry the worship relationship they have with Jehovah all the time, everywhere, for as long as they are alive on this earth. But what do you see in the present day church? On Monday, she is dressed nude. And when the pastor calls her, says, well, uh, I, I was in town today. Are we able to meet? Yes, I was in town today, yes. Are we able to meet with your husband around so we can continue that counseling during lunch break? Because today I'm in town. Said, no, 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 I'm not able to meet you. Because now on Monday she's not born again. She's ashamed to be seen by her pastor in the way she has dressed at workplace. Her dressing. So they are born again only on Sunday, in which they also come and born again dressed like, you know, the world. And then, on Monday and the rest of the days, the Christ is not there. They are undercover Christians. They are, they are Christians that are undercover at workplace. They don't say to people, look, I'm born again, beloved people. They want to hide it so that they may get certain wicked, sinful desires propagated, perpetuated there, and then going to sin and be promoted or whatever, or have the favor of the boss, or whatever it is their gains are in the immoral world. And yet here he's saying that the Lord designed that the tabernacle in the wilderness be mobile, be movable. It can move. It was moving with them wherever they went. They, they went, meaning he intended that the worship relationship he had now crafted between himself and mankind be kept.
inherit by mankind, taken by mankind, everywhere, wherever they went, whichever they place. You can see other religions are doing that. Other religions, they even build their worship centers along the highways. Huh? You find that sometimes in, in the aircraft, you know, one day I was in a flight from Manaus to Sao Paulo, and right in front of me, it was amazing, there was this Jewish couple that was seated in the same aircraft with me. And up there, about 37,000 feet, and you see, he was not eating the same food that was being given in the plane. He was eating kosher food. And then when the time for worship came, it's amazing, he stood up, and he began to tie those things on his head and the arm, and then he, 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 looked, he looked at uh, someone that was sitting next to him, he, I mean, on the other side of the aisle, because he was with the whole family on this side, and then he said, come, come, let's worship. He began to tie those things, and right in front of the aircraft, right there, all people are watching him, he began to bow down and worship right there. That is so tremendous, beloved people. That is very shocking. And then they are supposed to recognize Christ. They have not yet received him and recognized him. And still they are operating according to the original instruction. And for us, we have the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus. We have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, how much more then should we be worshiping Christ Jesus, Jehovah Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit everywhere, all the time, wherever we go, for as long as we live on this earth? How much more then? I thought that was a big indictment to the church. He was saying, in other words, in that plane, that uh, Hebrew guy, he was saying, all these people don't matter to me. Public opinion doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is to fear my God, Jehovah. And they were doing it there, and then I kept saying, wow. And they have not yet even been opened. Their eyes have not opened to see the Messiah, and they are doing it this way. How much more when they find the Messiah? How much more? That is what he's saying here. The lessons we learn from tabernacle worship to underscore righteousness. And this article is on the garment. Don't forget that. It's on the garment of righteousness. So it's coming up ahead of us here. This part is still an introduction. He says, moreover, the fact that there was only one door to the tabernacle greatly underscored and alluded and foretold of Christ Jesus the Lord, the Messiah, who would come and would be the only door for mankind to access worshipping Jehovah. Very powerful. Then he says, reference should primarily, reference should be primarily focused on the Lord's command that was handed down to Moses as to achieve that glorious worship and how he faithfully implemented it to achieve the prescribed garment of worship. He says to this present-day church, for instance, it is important to underscore here that the twisted effort, effort made of gold, purple, blue, again, made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, the, the sash, and the fashioned breastplate mounted with four rows of precious stones containing ruby, topaz, beryl, turquoise, sapphire, and emerald, all point at the intricate spiritual design that the Holy Spirit should bring into the garment of righteousness 
that the present day church ought to be wearing at this hour. That is very powerful. It says the embroidery of the garment, rather before the embroidery, it says the adornment and the specifications of the garment that you saw the priests wear to fulfill righteousness, to go before the Lord in the tabernacle worship. They speak volumes to this generation and this church. It says the twisted effort made of gold, pure gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, the sash, the fashioned breastplate mounted with four rows of precious stones, containing ruby, topaz, pearl, turquoise, sapphire, and emerald, all point this present-day church to the intricate spiritual design of the Holy Spirit that was meant to bring, the, the, the intricate design the Holy Spirit was meant to deliver, actually, into the righteousness of the present-day church. What does he mean there? Let me open it up now. He says, it is a spiritual crescendo that was meant to be struck and it was meant to exude the fragrance of holiness in the church's worship. Listen to this now. He says, while the garment finishing, such as the embroideries and the engraving, also made their special contribution to the tabernacle worship. Comma. He says, today, however, all this translates to the significance that every little aspect of our daily life delivers and contributes to the perfecting of our worship unto the Lord. So this is a very powerful thing, beloved people. Because he's saying that much as those little items, the twisted effort, the blue, purple, gold, scarlet yarn, the sash, the fashion breastplate mounted with stones, precious stones, like, you know, ro- ruby, topaz, beryl, sapphire, sapphire, emeralds, he says they pointed at the intricate spiritual design of the Holy Spirit and how he had intended to deliver that intricacy of worship into the present-day worship experience in the church. And he says very clear here that it was supposed to strike a crescendo and it was meant in such a way to bring a message. For example, the embroidery, he says, and the engravings of the garments that Aaron wore, they were meant in a special way to make contributions to the tabernacle worship. And in this present life, they are translated as the significance and the contribution of every little aspect of our daily life as they contribute to the perfecting of our righteous worship before the Lord. Meaning, you cannot now blend it with other things. Every little piece of your lifestyle is meant to contribute to this righteousness, this worshiping of the Lord in righteousness. And the Holy Spirit is the facilitator, beloved people. He says, what we think, what we eat, the schemes of our heart, the contemplations of our mind, how we dress, the friends we hang out with, are just but a few spiritual embroideries that go a long way to perfection the garment of righteousness in the hearts of the Christian believers. Hmm? So all these contribute, beloved people. You can't say my Sunday church is what I depend on. All these other days I do what I want. No! He's saying no, it's not possible here. When he's shouting righteousness, 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 it is wholesome. It is the totality of your Christian worship, Christian lifestyle, Christian life 
are the believers your worship before the Lord. And he says, by looking at how today's church has ignored the role of the Holy Spirit in her daily life and worship, one wonders why she has not yet comprehended that a Christian lifestyle without the leadership and the lordship of the Holy Spirit cannot lead to the glorious kingdom of God. How? Why are they going out there like that? Why are they preaching the way they're preaching without bringing righteousness to the church? Without the pre- preparing the nation, the church, for the coming of the Messiah? Without centering righteousness? He says, considering the level of craftsmanship and actionship and refinement that the Lord is specifying regarding the glorious garment for the coming of the Messiah, then one wonders why the minds of the present-day pastors have not been kindled, or at least rekindled, to the supernatural being of the Holy Spirit as the only way out, out of this apostasy, beloved people. He says, finest linen, bright and clean, was given hot wear. He says now, when he says that finest linen, bright and clean, only the Holy Spirit can design that garment. And that garment is designed in the design of the cross. Then he says, the fineness of the artisanship, of the refinement, of the workmanship, of the skillfulness required to design and to, to, to build that garment, can only resound a warning to the present-day pastor that surely, 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 you must, you will need the supernatural being, the lordship of the Holy Spirit, as your only out. And he says further on, in the Lord's specifications of the garment, it is the finest, glorious garment of holiness that is totally untenable outside the realm of the Holy Spirit. And he says, owing to the excellence of the accomplishment that Jesus achieved for the church on the cross, Again, that Jesus achieved on the cross and delivered to the church, God Most High has prescribed forth for his bride the perfect, glorious raiment that is without blemish. And since the Messiah himself is a perfect man without blemish, that is how he terminates that article. He says, owing to the perfect work Jesus did on the cross, when he gave us the grace, it was a perfect grace. When he gave us the grace, it was perfect in all things, perfect in its nature. That grace of God in Christ Jesus is perfect in its authority and power to deliver us from sin and to help us through the Holy Spirit perpetually until we become perfect bride and defeat the perfectness of the work he did on the cross and defeat the perfectness of my Father in heaven, my sender. The perfectness of the glorious kingdom of heaven. So, beloved people, this righteousness the Lord speaks about is meant to have been the receiving of the whole, the receiving of Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then the receiving of the Lordship of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit working in the heart and life and soul of the Christian believers, perpetually, consistently, and constantly purging of sin, cleaning of sin, purifying them, making them radiant, 
that he may now finally achieve the confirmation to reconfirm their souls away from the sinful desires of flesh, away from the affections of the flesh that are sinful, but to reconfirm the flesh of the Christian believer back to the image and the likeness of God. May the Lord bless you. May you be righteous, beloved people. The Messiah is coming. And for him to resound righteousness, righteousness, tell it to everybody. For five hours this night, I am sure you are all aware that there must be a hidden, concealed message that I am not giving you. He must be saying that surely the Messiah is about to come. May the Lord bless you. Shalom to Daraba. Erev Tov Lachem. I want to give a very short message here on the road of the Holy Spirit in our continuing series to build up the church, to create understanding and also an awareness and to bring help to the church at this hour that the Lord has announced righteousness. And uh, following the conversation we had, it is becoming apparent to the church but um, only the person of the Holy Spirit, even as I said, is the one that is capable of helping the church to be able to score all the requirements that we discussed yesterday that are supposed to be taking place in the life of the church today. Now, today I want to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. I will give a summary and a brief, and this will be a continuing conversation. Number one, the Holy Spirit, he comes to the church as the biggest ever gift that was given to the church. There is no greater gift that was ever given to the church by the Godhead, by the Lord Yahweh, than the Holy Spirit that came to help the church. The greatest gift that was ever given to the church to the Church of Christ is actually the Holy Spirit. So the first role of the Holy Spirit in the Church is He brought us Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that brought us Christ Jesus the Messiah that He may come and die for the sins of men. So you really see how center and central and how significant the Holy Spirit is in the life of the Church. The Holy Spirit was there from the beginning of the inception of the church because the Holy Spirit, he is the one that brought us Christ Jesus, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior. In the book of Luke chapter 1 verse 35 he says, again Luke chapter 1 verse 35 he says, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So you see that the Holy Spirit is the one that brought us Christ the Messiah. The incarnation of Christ the Messiah was done by the Holy Spirit. He's the one that brought us the Savior. He brought us Christ Jesus the Savior. He's the one that brought God the Father changed into God the Son and come to us to deliver the nations, deliver humanity. 
And so after he brought us Christ Jesus, number two, the second role of the Holy Spirit in the church is that the Holy Spirit actually is the one that crucified Christ Jesus the Lord. He is the one that took him to the cross and crucified him that he may complete the mission of deliverance of mankind from sin. Number three, the Holy Spirit is the one that resurrected Christ Jesus the Lord. And there's so much scripture to read, we don't have much time to read it. Uh, from the book of Romans chapter 6, we begin with Romans 6. He says here, Romans 6 verse uh, 4, verse 4, he says, you can read the whole chapter though, but he says, from verse 4, King James, Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism into death, like Christ, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so even we also should we also should walk in newness of life. I'm reading NIV here, it says, it says, We therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The book of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. He says the following. He says, um, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Romans chapter 8. Verse 11, Romans 8, 11, the Holy Spirit resurrected the Messiah. Romans 8, 11, he says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. And many other scriptures so you see very clearly that the third role of the Holy Spirit in the church is that the Holy Spirit resurrected Christ the Messiah and gave the church this wonderful hope of resurrection. And under that you have Second Corinthians chapter four verse fourteen and also Second Corinthians chapter thirteen verse four. Now in the church the Holy Spirit is called the counselor, and that means he comes to counsel. He comes as a counselor. That means he's an advisor. He comes to advise the church. That is the fourth role of the Holy Spirit in the church. As a consultant, he comes to coach as a coach, as an instructor to the believers, as a teacher, a trainer, a guide, a confident, a mentor. He comes as a helper, as an aide. A-I-D-E. He comes as a teacher to teach the church, instructor, and coach. Now, I want to look at some very important uh, roles of the Holy Spirit and even the genesis of the Holy Spirit in the church, how the Holy Spirit got involved with the church. 
Now, the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18, we're going to read. But before we go there, if you go to Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7, then you see right from the beginning how the Holy Spirit began to engage with the church. Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7. And he says here, if you start verse 6, yes, you can read if you have time. He says, but streams came up from the earth, and watered the whole surface of the earth. The other versions called it mist. Mist used to rise from the earth. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Verse 7 is our scripture. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That is the first time now you see the church is getting involved with the Holy Spirit. When he breathed the breath of life into him, then he became a living being. That breath of life is the Holy Spirit of the Lord that entered the newly constructed man, newly created man, and life came to him. So the other role of the Holy Spirit, number five, is to bring life to the church. He gave life to the church, and you see the breath. So the breath we have, the breath of life, is when God did blow into the nostrils, the, the nose of mankind, and the Spirit of the Lord came to man. The breath of life, the breath, you gave him life. The book of First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. First Corinthians 15, 45, blessed people. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. I'll read it real quick. 1545. He says the following. He says, So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. So it's very powerful that uh, when the Lord came to us, Jesus came to us, he came as a life-giving spirit the Spirit of the Lord giving life to man. And when you read the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, verses 1 to 6, it talks about the life-giving river that flows from the throne of God into the four ends of the earth, the life-giving Spirit of the Lord. Now, the book of Job, the book of Job, chapter 33, verse 4, also talks about the life-giving Spirit of the Lord, how he gave his breath unto mankind, and the Spirit of the Lord gave life to man. If you go to the book of Job, chapter 33, Job 33, and you go all the way to verse 4. Job 33, verse 4, beloved people, as we wind down, on the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. I'm just connecting you to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Job 33, verse 4, it says, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. So it is the life-giving Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes to give life. And the book of Ezekiel 37 also says the breath of God, the Spirit of God brought the breath of life into mankind. Now, let us look at the engagement between the church and the Holy Spirit. Because Christ Jesus himself promised the church. He promised the church 
that he would send his Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, verses 38 to 39. Christ Jesus promises the church that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, beloved people, verses 38 to 39. And he says the following. The book of John chapter 7, verses 38 on. And chapter 7. And he says, again, John chapter 7, verse uh, 38. This is what he says to the people. He says, uh, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then verse 39 says, By this he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believe in him were later to receive. Up to the time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified, and he had not yet left. So the Lord Jesus promised the church that he would give the church the Holy Spirit. He would send the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 4, he said he would not leave. He would not leave them as orphans. He would not leave them alone. He would not leave them alone, but he promised that they would have a comforter. And so, when he left, then the promise came, and he said it would be good for them that he leaves, because then the promise would come. So he told them they should never, ever leave Jerusalem until the gift comes to the church, comes to them, meaning the Holy Spirit was the one to come and empower the church. In fact, he told them not to do ministry, not to begin ministry, not to do church, until the Holy Spirit comes to them. And surely when it came to them, then they were empowered. And uh, at that time on now, the church began. So the Holy Spirit runs the church. That's another role of the Holy Spirit. But if you read the book of John chapter 14, verse 18, real quick because of time. John 14, 18, it gives you another role of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 18. This is what he says. He says, in fact, from 15 on is very important, but verse 18, he goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as often. I will come to you. And if you read from 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Now he calls him counselor. That's why I define the counselor. And I say it, which means he comes to advise the church. He comes as one the church can consult with a consultant. He comes as a guide to guide the church. He comes as the confidant of the church, someone you can confide in and ask him things, what to do. He comes as a, a mentor of the church, the aid, the helper, the trainer, the teacher, the tutor, the instructor of the church. And this is the promise he gave here. So the Holy Spirit 
in the church. But when you read chapter 14, verse 27, he now comes through for peace. Verse 27 is this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So this counselor he was bringing, he said, would bring peace. So the Holy Spirit brings peace to the church also. No matter the turbulence, no matter the persecution, the Holy Spirit is the one that comforts the church. And then uh, verse 26, he teaches the church. He reveals God to the church. Let's look at verse 26, the book of John 14. And he says very clearly here, beloved people, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said unto you. So you see, the Holy Spirit comes to teach the church and essentially reveal God to the church. And in so doing, the Holy Spirit brings faith, belief, belief first of all, and then faith. Now people begin to have faith. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then it brings obedience to the Lord, to the Word of God, and then it instills holiness and righteousness. But there is a process. So if you look at John chapter 16, verse 8, that is the counselor. That is how he works through the person. Conviction of sin. He makes you convicted to your sin, then you feel a conviction that, no, I think this is wrong. And then he leads to repentance and he makes the sinner aware of sin. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 26, he makes the believer sensitive to sin. Sensitive to sin and now always repentant. He makes the believer repentant. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16, 23, the Holy Spirit also helps the church to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So how does all this work, beloved people? Let me summarize it for you again. We have seen how the Holy Spirit brings Christ the Messiah to the church. He brought us the Messiah. He brought us the Savior. And when the Holy Spirit brought the Savior, he also led him to the cross and empowered him through his ministry and led him to the cross to die for the sins of men, to fulfill the role and mission of the Savior, to bring the covenant of grace. And after the Holy Spirit brought the covenant of grace, now he also resurrected him at that death. So he resurrects the church. He brought resurrection to the church. He resurrected the Messiah, brought the Messiah, empowered the Messiah, took him the cross and resurrected him. So the Holy Spirit is the most important gift, the single most important gift that the church ever received. The greatest gift in the church is called the Holy Spirit. And so how does he work? He works in the hearts of men and women, and he restrains the dominion of darkness. We have seen how he has kept the Antichrist away for all this time and from being revealed and that dominion of wickedness, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Number three, he convicts the world 
of righteousness. We don't have time because of time. I'm reading John chapter 16, verses 7 to 11. This is what he says here, John 16, 7 to 11. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. So he brings conviction, beloved people. He convicts the world. I say he works in the hearts of men and women. He restrains the dominion of darkness. I'm looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the church after bringing Christ. And then and resurrecting him, empowering him and doing public ministries, strengthening him to resurrect people, uh, strengthening him to do miracles, to move him until he resurrected him. And then in the church, he works in the hearts of mankind. He restrains dominion of darkness and wickedness. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world. He said of sin and righteousness, of guilt and of judgment. The righteousness and judgment. And you see, in response to this, now look at the role of the Holy Spirit here. When the world now responds to this conviction, to sin, convict them of sin, of their wickedness and righteousness and judgment, when they now respond to that, that is when people live their lives to Jesus. That is when salvation is received. So you can see how powerful the Holy Spirit is. Then he brings salvation to the hearts of men. Once they are convicted, you give them the gospel, they tremble, they are like, oh, I, th- I, think, I, I think this way is not right. I need to receive the Lord. Yes, I'm tired of this. And then now salvation comes through that conviction. The Holy Spirit, after convicting the person and they receive Christ, then now the Holy Spirit now moves into their hearts and takes home, takes residence in their hearts. Now starts to live in their hearts. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 9, again, 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 13, again, we are aware of this, the scripture on avoiding sexual sin, 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, says, Know ye not that you are not your own, you have been purchased. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he moves in and he lives now in the hearts of the believers. Once the Holy Spirit has moved into the heart of the believer, the next thing he does is that now he helps them to seal them for eternity. Then, you see, that is now the justification. Sanctification and justification when they now become the children of God. So he seals them for eternal life. And then he comforts them now in the process because now he's a counselor to them. And then he reveals the deeper truth to the church to understand the word of God, to interpret the word of God. And then he brings gifts. He brings gifts to the church also. He brings gifts now. You see, he brings prophecy. He that speaks with you is empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring prophecy. And uh, he gives it to tongue, the genuine tongue, not the false tongue you see in the church today. So, beloved people, because of time, we will continue this conversation another time. But you can see really, really how central the Holy Spirit is in the church. Then the question becomes, are you in field with the Holy Spirit? Are you in a place where you're sensitive to sin and you're convicted to sin? And that conviction leading to repentance?
clearly that he's so central. He even brought up Christ Jesus. He empowered him to do his public ministry and he resurrected him. And he's the one that has given us the hope for resurrection. So the Holy Spirit is a centerpiece. Is a central, it's very central in Christian life. And that's why God the Father said you cannot touch him. You cannot grieve him or blaspheme him. You'll never be forgiven. And Jesus also warned that you cannot touch him. You cannot grieve him or blaspheme him. So may the Lord bless you, beloved people. And may you embrace the Holy Spirit in your Christian life. Thank you. Shalom. Well, uh, we have been having a long conversation on the person of the Holy Spirit, the visitation of the Holy Spirit in the church, and I thought uh, we could take this opportunity to advance our conversation regarding the Holy Spirit. Yesterday we had a serious talk at lunch hour regarding the role of the Holy Spirit and many things he's doing in the church. And what came out yesterday was that the Holy Spirit is essentially, actually, the most important gift that the church received. Because we saw yesterday that uh, the Holy Spirit is the one that uh, uh, fundamentally brought Christ Jesus and uh, he incarnated him that he may come in bodily form. And after bringing Christ Jesus into this world, then it is he, the Holy Spirit still, that now got involved in empowering the ministry of the Messiah when he landed on him, descended on him, and uh, that was at the Jordan River during baptism. And in that uh, visitation, he actually identified and revealed he revealed Christ the Messiah to the whole earth and to the heavens. He revealed him, said, this is the chosen one of the Lord. And after bringing him, now at baptism, he reveals him to the universe, to the whole earth, and to the hosts of heaven, that this is the chosen one of the Lord. And then after that, we saw very clearly that uh, the Holy Spirit then empowered him, Christ Jesus the Messiah, to do his public ministry here on the earth. And when he did his public ministry on the earth, the cripples walked, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the mute spoke, paralytics got up, leprosy was healed, dead, the dead were resurrected. And then at the end of it, uh, it's the Holy Spirit again in the Garden of Gethsemane that strengthened him, in fact, strengthened him right from the conversation that took place on the mountain of Transfiguration when he was told by the two witnesses to go and finish the work. To now go and finish the work that the way to eternity and his safety has been secured. And so when he went again to the Garden of Gethsemane, it is the same Holy Spirit that empowered him and enabled him to overcome, to travail and overcome, and the Holy Spirit took him to the cross and crucified him. Because you heard the Lord Jesus himself say that I myself surrendered, that he surrendered himself essentially to those who crucified him. That was the will of the Holy Spirit. And it is he, the same Holy Spirit, that removed him from death, resurrected him, 
I remember the time when God the Father took me and showed me the entire cascade, how Christ the Messiah was tortured, how he was abused and crucified on the cross. I saw everything. He showed me everything, how he was crucified and suffered a great deal, tortured. And then when he died and went down, so the Father took me down also, so I saw when Christ went down. And then I also saw the moment when the glory, the Holy Spirit came down and resurrected him. And the glory hit the shock, and he went up in victory. So it is the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit again, that resurrected the Messiah. And then the same Holy Spirit came in the cloud of God and raptured the Messiah into heaven. And now he has been sent to the church. He has been sent to the church. And so what came out essentially yesterday in that conversation and today now is that the Holy Spirit is the biggest gift that was ever given to the church. And now he's available in the church. And at the moment, the Holy Spirit is involved in preparing the church. Today I want to continue this conversation with looking at his role in the church because he is the one preparing the glorious bride for the coming of the Messiah. And we see in the book of John chapter 15 verse 26 that when the counselor, the Lord Jesus is speaking now, when the counselor comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So this is the promise the Messiah was giving the church before his departure, that uh, he will send the spirit of truth. And this spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, will come from the Father and bring the truth. And so you see, beloved people, that uh, right there you see the mission and the role, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church and what he is doing in the church today. And this raises a lot of questions about the body of Christ that you see globally because he says that when the counselor comes, whom I will send you from the Father, from my Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, meaning that uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which I'm looking at today, the work, the role of the Holy Spirit, is essentially to come and testify about Christ. In other words, to reveal Christ the Messiah more and more and more to the church. And one of the things that he does reveal about Christ the Messiah more and more and more to the church is the fact that Christ the Messiah is the Lord. That's number one. So that all people may now submit to the Lordship of Christ the Messiah. And then number two, he also reveals that Christ the Messiah is holy. And again, now you see, so... Number one, that he is Lord. Submit to his Lordship. Number two, he is holy. So be holy if you are in Christ Jesus. And that's why I said it raises a lot of questions about the current body of Christ as to whether they have received the Holy Spirit. 
Because apart from revealing him as Lord and Savior, and that we should submit to the Lordship of Christ the Messiah, he also reveals him as holy, the holy God of the Trinity. He is one of the members of triunity of the Godhead. And if he is holy, all those that worship him must be holy. And then, again, in the process then of revealing this, I'm reading on from the book of John 16, verse 13 now, and he says here, I begin from 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. So that is very powerful. He's saying that the spirit of truth will come. So number three, as he reveals the holiness of the Messiah, he also comes to clean out the deception in the church. Because he brings the truth then. Then the truth sets the church free from deception. So you can tell that he comes in John chapter 16 verse 13 to remove deception. The Lord knew that at this hour there would be a lot of deception in the church and globally. So that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to bring the truth and to slay deception. In other words, also to bring down the deceivers, the, the liars in the church and globally. It's a very powerful thing. And he's also saying here, very powerfully, that he will guide you. So he gives guidance. You see that now. And then he only speaks of what he hears. So he connects the church to heaven. What he hears in the kingdom, he translates, he brings to the church. And then, of course, he talks about the future also. He will tell you what is yet to come, meaning he will reveal to you the coming of the Messiah. He will reveal to you the things that are coming, beloved people. So this is a powerful power in the church. He is the one that was sent to help the church. And if you look at the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, beloved people, verse 16, look at this now. Galatians chapter 5, 16, I'm reading. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Very powerful. Meaning, the fourth role of the Holy Spirit is essentially to do on a daily basis, step by step, walking with the Christian, to guide the Christian walk, to guide the Christian walk. So I say, so I say, Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the sinful desires of the flesh, of the sinful nature. That is very powerful. He actually comes to sieve out the church. In so doing, to separate out the church from the sinful desires of the world, the sinful desires of the flesh. And I said yesterday that he has a convicting role. But when he comes to the world, he convicts the world on righteousness, on judgment, on the kingdom of God, on sin. He convicts the world. He presents the facts, the truth to the world, that the judgment of the Messiah is coming, the judgment of the Lord is coming, and that there is need to be righteous and holy, to separate from moral decay, from sin, wickedness, evil that you see has drenched this world, has flooded the earth now, the hearts of men and women. 
And so, in so doing, when people now are convicted, they receive Christ. They repent and receive Christ. And that when they receive the Messiah, when they receive Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, then the Holy Spirit moves into them. He now takes residence into their hearts. And in there now, He seals them. He seals them with eternity. He seals them for eternal life, for the kingdom of God. And then after that, He begins to counsel them. So we see here in Galatians chapter 5, 16, it says very beautifully here that, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the sinful, the desires of the sinful flesh, of the sinful nature. And so that is why, again, I really want to encourage all the churches that I see globally, sometimes on Christian TV, you see them in nudity and what, false prophets, false prophecy, false apostles. You see their deception. You see the way they're teaching. You know, for me it's different. I see them deeper. I, I read, I, I see so much. But you see the big deception. Say, no. He said, live by the Spirit. They need to receive the Holy Spirit that they may now stop gratifying the flesh that lies to you and says, go lie that God spoke to me about this. So a seed of this amount and get what? Buy your miracle what? Eh? God told me that if you say one dollar seed, they, they say those things. They say that when the Lord, the Lord that, the, that the Lord told them whoever pays less money will get less deliverance, whoever pays more money. That, that lie, that is a lie. You will not gratify the flesh. That is the flesh in the church. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, when I move on to verse 25 here, the same Galatians, and he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, it's so powerful because he says, he comes to do what he did with Enoch. He comes to do what he did with Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Because he says from verse 24, he says here, Galatians chapter 5, those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envy, envying one another. But you see, verse 25 is very powerful. Let us keep in step with the Spirit, meaning He comes to reside in the hearts of the believers. He comes to reside in the church. He comes to remain in the church. He comes to remain in the life of the Christian, that you may walk with Him every day the way Enoch walked with God and enter heaven. Do you see how the Holy Spirit essentially prepares the church? That is how He prepares the church for entry. He comes to do a replica of what happened in Genesis chapter 5, Verses 21 to 24, when God walked with man until Enoch was no more, he saw eternity. So the Holy Spirit essentially comes so that he may now take those who belong to Christ who have crucified the flesh and the sinful nature with his passions and desires and affections, incinerate those desires, and then build forth a new person, birth forth a new person, the new being that you are when you receive Christ is a spiritual being. It's facilitated by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. And it says in the process, then the Holy Spirit walks with a Christian, like we've seen in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, guiding the Christian walk. 
in Galatians chapter 5, now 25, walking with God, making the church walk with God, as in Genesis 5, 21 to 24, when Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He was raptured, he was taken, he never saw death. This is a very powerful thing, beloved people. A very powerful moment in the church. When God is now engaging the church on the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit may now be able to prepare the bride in this grand finale, this grand final. If you look at John chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it says the following. John chapter 14, I beg your pardon. John 14, 16 and 17, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will, again, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. So he comes to remain in the church, beloved people. He comes and remains available to the church. And that's why the current apostasy you see in the church is totally uncalled for. The current nudity that you see women are preaching when they are naked, uh, and they don't seem to blush. They have no shame. Eh? Preaching on global TV, other religions are seeing and castigating and then the blackmailing the Lord. Hmm? Men are just walking there, casually talking lies, you know, this frantic prophesying they're doing in vanity and emptiness without preparing the church, without asserting the need, to, to, to the need for holiness in the church. He's saying it is totally uncalled for the false prophecy, the lies, the, the, the unguided church. Why? Because he says he came to remain, remain in the life of the church forever. The anointing of the Holy Spirit was sent. The Holy Spirit was sent to the church to remain in the church forever. So it's unbelievable, beloved people. Because he says, only the world cannot accept him. So unless the church has not accepted him, otherwise the church ought to be very prudent and very wise now and walking in righteousness. Because he is available. He came to remain unless the church did not receive him. And he says, he comes to the church. And the church, of course, that is worldly, is not going to accept him. Because he says the world will not accept him. He was said to the church. Could it be true that the present church that is wallowing in sin, that does not see the need for righteousness, that's abusing the grace and preaching that you don't have to worry about righteousness and holiness, don't worry, the grace is sufficient. It will just carry you like that. God will be blind. He will turn a blind eye on sin. Huh? That church that is abusing the grace of our Lord Jesus, the church God warned in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, when he says it is therefore impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have seen the powers of the coming age, if they fall back to sin, to be brought back to repentance. That church that was being warned there, could it be that it is because they have not received the Holy Spirit? And that the answer is yes. So the Holy Spirit does tremendous things. I'm discussing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you see the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. Eh? Let me give a summary here. The Holy Spirit was involved in creation. The book of Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. He was involved in creation. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, beloved people. I'm looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to summarize for you. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, he says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That is the Holy Spirit. So you see that the Holy Spirit in his ministry, the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. The Holy Spirit of Jehovah was involved in creation. So he is a very important aspect of life on this earth, beloved people. He was involved in creation. That's number one. It's been summarizing now as we check out, apart from preparing the church that we've seen. Number two, turn with you Zechariah chapter 4, beloved people. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Let's see what he says here. Then he says, So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He says, Not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. Meaning, the Holy Spirit comes to empower the church. Apart from being involved in creation, number one, he also has a powerful ministry of, of enabling the church, of equipping the church, of empowering the church, of giving the church authority, of authorizing the church. So the church can now overcome. He authorizes the church that the church may now overcome, beloved people. We are looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. And John chapter 16, just a recap, John chapter 16, Verse 13, another ministry and role of the Holy Spirit we just read, but I'm summarizing now. John 16, I'm reading verse 13. He says from verse 12, I have much more to say unto you, more than you can bear. But 13, he says, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into truth. Meaning that is the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he will reveal to you things to come. The Holy Spirit will come and teach the church. His role is to teach and to clean up deception. That is the teaching and the discipling ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. Number four, beloved people, John chapter 14, verse 26. And he says this, verse 26, as we've seen. He says, John 14, But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said. So you see that he comes with a teaching ministry. But then here now, apart from the teaching ministry, he's also a counselor. A counselor is a mentor, he's a guide. He's a confidant, beloved people. And when you turn now to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 14, look at what he says about the ministry of the Holy Spirit here, the role of the Holy Spirit. He says very clearly in verse 14, 13, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Then verse 14, he says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Look at that now. He comes to help the weak nature. He comes to help the church. Verse 26, beloved people, is very powerful. Verse 26, in finishing, it says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning that words cannot express. Look at His role there. He helps the weak church. He strengthens the church. He comforts the church. He helps the church to pray. He prays for the church. And he has a role, he has a ministry of prayer, the ministry of intercession for the church. 
helps the weak church. So nobody can say, no, you see, I'm just weak. We are weak mortals. We are mere mortals. You have the help of the Holy Spirit at your disposal. He is the comforter. In the book of Isaiah 48, I'm looking at the role of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 48, verse 16. Isaiah 48, verse 16, as we finish. He says this. Isaiah 48, 16. He says, Come near me and listen. Come near me and listen. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret at the time it happened. I am there. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me with the Spirit. Look at that now. Guiding the church. Becomes to give guide. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, said, He comes to guide the church, beloved people. To guide the church, to guide you, to guide you on what not to wear, what not to do, what not to say, where not to go. He becomes a constant guide available to the church, a compass unto the church. And in John 16, verse 8, we've also seen very clearly in John 16, 8, that He comes to bring repentance. John 16, 8, as I finish, beloved people, when He comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin because men do not believe. So he will lead by conviction now to repentance and salvation and move into them and fill them. And Isaiah chapter 59, beloved people, in finishing the book of Isaiah 59, verse 19. This is what he says, beloved people. Isaiah 59, 19, as I finish this, he says, From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pen up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Look at that now. Tremendous. You restrain sin. He comes to the church to restrain sin. Look at that Isaiah 59.19. And in the same context, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 to 7, restraining the dominion of darkness, the dominion of the Antichrist. How about the book of Acts, beloved people, in finishing, that's the last scripture I read. The book of Acts chapter 8, and it talks here very clearly about the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 13, I'm reading verse 2. Acts chapter 13, Acts 13, verse 2. And he says the following. Look at this now. His role in guiding the church, guiding the operations of the church. Again, uh, verse 2. When they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Look at the role of the Holy Spirit in evangelizing, in commissioning the church, the servants of the Lord. And then Acts chapter 8 is also next door. Acts chapter 8 is here, verse 29. You see now the role of the Holy Spirit in the operations of evangelism in the church, in guiding the church, in guiding the operations of the body of Christ. In guiding the church, beloved people. And it says here, the book of Acts chapter 8, verse 29. This is what it says. 
Acts 8.29, he now says, The Spirit told Philip, Go to the chariot and stay near it. Guiding, direct instruction, direct guidance of evangelism, and leading the servants of the Lord directly where to go, how to minister. And it's available today in greater quantity, plenteous, because we're in the latter visitation. The book of Acts 16, verse 7, same thing. So the Holy Spirit, beloved people, comes to church. He was involved in creation, in summary. He comes to authorize and empower the church. He comes to the teaching ministry to teach the truth and cleanse the wickedness. He comes to guide the church and counsel her. He comes as a comforter. He comes to help the weak church, Romans 8, 26, we saw. He comes to convict the world, John 16, we saw. And the Holy Spirit comes to sensitize to sin and restrain sin, Isaiah 59, verse 19. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, he restrains the dominion of darkness until now effectively, excellently, and perfectly. And now we've seen in the book of Acts, guiding the church. And earlier on we saw that he's preparing the bride in that way, and in more specific ways by testifying about Christ Jesus, revealing him to the church, removing deception, and saying he's holy, and guiding the Christian walk in Galatians 5.16, as we saw, Galatians 5.25, we saw walk with the church, walk with God. The church has the opportunity to walk with God. And in John 14.16-17, he remains in the church. So he's available. May the Lord bless you, beloved people. But this is what I wanted to bring in, in a nutshell, that even as you go back to work, you may now think about those things. When you see sin in your office, how have you reacted to it? Have you crucified the desires of the flesh, the affections of sin? That now you are helped, you are immune. Instead, you look at them with pity and you help them. Your holiness, led by the Holy Spirit, will help convict them that they too may find Christ. How have you lived your life in those offices? May the Lord bless. Thank you. Shalom. Shalom.